the beauty in the world around us with makeup and without, and uh, <laughs> for all the ways that you've revealed your creative abilities and the wonderful ideas that you have in your mind um, about what, how things fit together and, and how working together, colors blend and textures blend and shapes blend and make beauty. And we're just amazed at the endless abilities that you have. And thank you so much for not just making it, but for giving us the senses to receive it. And a feeling inside of us that's moved when we see something that you've made that makes us think of you and that sometimes catches our breath and sometimes makes us breathe out and sometimes makes us hold our breath. And um, all these are acts of worship when we see who you are and what you've made. So we're grateful for all of it and ask that you would give us wider eyes and bigger hearts so that we can know and appreciate even more. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I've definitely come to in my yet getting older is that God in his infinity um, has more to show you all the time. And it's never going to be that he won't have another beautiful thing to show you. It could be that you don't have the ability to hold it. And he uses a lot of different ways to expand your ability to hold more of him. Some of them are hard. Some of them are fun. But he is always expanding you as long as you're willing to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and uh, more capable of understanding. So never stop. Always keep learning. Okay, we're going to talk about... Um, artistic culture, one of my very, very favorites. Um, how many of you consider yourself artistic? How many of you don't get people who think of themselves as artistic? Okay, good. So, <laughs> we, we, saw the, we saw the banjo, dude, we know. <laughs> so, what makes a piece of art and that's not just visual art, any piece of art, quote, beautiful, with a capital B. What makes it beautiful? Yep. And to me, there are two types of beautiful. There's one that you look at it and you're like, okay, well, this is like aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing, like it's even, it's well done. But really, what makes it beautiful is what you put into it. Like, if a little kid came up with a drawing and they put it in a museum, they're like, okay, what's the point? But if they would just think Picasso did it. <laughs> like, Sorry. If a little kid that I was babysitting came up to me and they're like, I drew you a picture, I would think the picture is beautiful just because that is what I'm reading into it and that's what they put into it. So. What if they showed you a picture they didn't draw you but they drew, they drew for her? <laughs> I would be extremely jealous and I would... Because no. <laughs> <laughs> part of what makes it beautiful is it's for you. Yeah. So you see it in a particular way. But that's your point. Yeah. How you see it. Okay, the perspective from which you see it. Yep. It moves you. It moves you. It makes you feel an emotion. Uh, it could be a bad emotion, even. Uh, like, there's songs that can make you mad, but I think it accomplished its purpose, and I think it's beautiful in the sense that it accomplished what it was set out to do, whether it was to make you mad or not, but it's to make you feel something. Beautiful in that it accomplishes its purpose. Like, when you go to, a, like, in, like an uh, art gallery, they ask you, what does this piece mean to you? What does this do for you? Like, it's subjective. We could all see a blue circle, and we could all see something different out of that blue circle. Yeah. Going off what Jean said, it affects you. I think whether positive or negative, but something that you consider beautiful affects you, whether it's emotionally or mentally or even spiritually, and it changes 
something inside of you. Is it beautiful if its purpose is to make you throw up and it works? <laughs> I'm serious. Or it makes you like, oh, is that beautiful? Don't we have another word for that? You can be moved by ugly, too. <laughs> like a, on Wild Hogs, the, the motorcycle, the William H. Macy character goes, the, the music moves me ugly, because he can't dance. We have it on the same shirt, dude. We're like rocking it. Um, this old man flannel right here, man. This is what that is. Um, but the idea of it being beautiful because it moves you, it can be beautiful because it moves you in a way that you're appreciating beauty. <laughs> I would say if it moves you and it has its desired effect, it's effective. Because I don't think something that makes me angry is necessarily beautiful. Do I look beautiful with words on my face? It just dawned on me. <laughs> Sorry. What else makes something beautiful beautiful? Other than this table right here. <laughs> yeah. Who's the per first person to come up with that idea? Proportion as part of beauty, balance. Came up with a really famous theorem, Pythagoras. It was part of the Greek idea. Yeah, like, Greg, why would we know that? Um, Pythagoras came up with this idea, and that was one of the components of classic Greek beauty was um, balance of parts. So are you the kind of person that likes the perfect bite on your fork? Yeah. <laughs> Dimitri Martin, anybody know Dimitri Martin? I'm not advocating him. Don't, I'm not saying watch him because I said that, but he is kind of funny. And he was talking about how in salad you take big things and you break them up and you make them into little things and then you just eat a small salad in every bite. You're trying to get a little bit of everything on every bite. You know, you just make a smaller and smaller salad on every <laughs> He just closed, he just closed, you just bury your head. I'm bobbing for salad. Um, but I think that idea of proportionality really is part of beauty and things fitting together in a, in a particular way. It's not just enough of everything, but things actually fitting together in just a particular way. That really is a part of beauty. That's really true. I think of the movie The Three Musketeers, <laughs> where uh, they're trying to get D'Artagnan to have his first kiss. They say, you can talk first, but mostly it's just in how you kiss. He said, words are just a waste of time. And it's Aramis says, only the wrong words are a waste of time. All the girls are like, <laughs> that's why he's called Aramis. That's why he's called Aramis. Um, unfortunately, played by Charlie Sheen. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Winning. Did someone else like wave their hand like with an idea of beauty other than the three musketeers? Yeah. I was just gonna say beauty is always in the eye of the beholder. Simple. 
Always? Um, what if, I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> what if we should arm wrestle for it, buddy? Um, what if, <laughs> Don, Don, she's already cheering for you. <laughs> um, what, what if we all see it the same way? Is it just all our eyes see it, or is there something that made us all see it that way? This is the question that always comes up in beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If every eye sees it the same, is it still in the eye of the beholder? Which could be true, it's just the pushback. But then well, ugly could be in the eye of the beholder in that sense too, yeah. which means it's not our eye or it's our opinion that makes it beautiful. And that's the question is if it's up to our opinion, but we all think it's beautiful. Like I've never seen anybody watch a beautiful sunset at the beach and like go, oh, that was terrible. <laughs> I hope I, I will never be able to unsee that in my life. <laughs> oh. You know, but I've seen lots of people all stand there and stare at an amazing, because something's happening in them right then, right there. I did see something. I will tell you, don't ever Google. <laughs> um, are you okay? <laughs> don't ever Google gangrene. Oh. Not ever. And I know some of you will tonight, but I've told you, don't ever Google. And if you do, don't go to images. Oh, Google, look it up and eat your mandarin oranges. <laughs> she just had them. She had a Harry Potter moment. She's like, oh, I wish I had some mandarin. Oh. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're putting my mandarin, guys. Come on. She just made a spell out of mandarin. Can you talk yet? Okay. Yeah. I have such respect for people who do have visual abilities and can see it before they, you know, and, and can like get what's in their head out on a piece of paper or out on a, on, a, on a canvas. I'm always amazed at that. Like I can see it and say, that's beautiful. I could never get it from seeing it like through my hands. You know, I just like, like my paws, it would just never come out. It would never come out that way. Mozart could actually hear music before he wrote it. And <laughs> so it was in his head, and he was already listening to it, and then would write down what, what he was hearing in his head. That is so rare, genius. I'm sure it's completely annoying to have something that exact and beautiful and articulated in your head. I'm sure it's part of what made him so weird. Like, wait, I've got this great theme you know, in my head. Let's hear it for normal, amen? Just normal people. <laughs> Not people who don't have genius music going through their head all the time.
good and bad, or just good, like you're just more appreciation. Yeah, I really think that's true. In fact, you know, part of it, and just playing off of what you said, part of it is when someone else has the ability and they've apprehended something as beautiful and they take the time to help you see it their way, all of a sudden you have a new apparatus, apprehension apparatus. You have a new ability to take it in, um, which is, is beautiful. And I also think, and I'll just take it a step further, that this is where knowledge really plays in. The more you understand something that has inherent beauty, the more beauty you can get out of it. Like, I think, I, I don't know if I've used this example before. Um, I'm a classically trained instrumentalist. And in the instrument that I play, which I played when I was your age in college, I played six hours a day. That's how much I practice, full-time college student practice six hours a day, two hours in the morning, two hours instead of lunch, and two hours in the evening. Still worked part-time because I was trying to pay for college. And um, listened to this instrument all the time. And I can actually like feel what note when I'm listening to another player. I can feel what note they're on. Not because I have perfect pitch, I don't. That's annoying, having perfect pitch. I don't, praise the Lord. But I can, I've got this sense in me because my instrument vibrating against my head for all those years gave me like an extrasensory perception of the notes. And I've tried to play the music, I've tried to play the instrument in all its different colors. So when I listen to a concerto on that instrument versus probably anybody else in this class who hasn't had classical training in this instrument, I appreciate something that no one else can appreciate. And it's, be and it's because this depth that I've gone to. And I think that can happen in almost any realm of sensual intake. That the more you know about something, the more you can appreciate it. The deeper the beauty will go inside of you when you hear it or see it or taste it or, or whatever else. Has anybody tasted anything new like this week that just blew your mind? You, you tasted something this week that blew your mind? Oh, <laughs> pumpkin pie spice. <laughs> Did you taste it too? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's never happened to you. And some people just like are not, their food just does not interest them. I envy you. You'll be skinny your whole life probably. Um, but I'm not like that. I love tasting something new and amazing. <laughs> I really love it. And I just feel like, you know, the world is full of new tastes. But you have to take a risk that you're going to get something that's too. So, like, I've tasted stuff. I'm like, blah. <laughs> it's not in the eye of the beholder. If it's bad, it's just bad. Right? Is there such a thing as bad art? If so, what makes it bad? So if you have a negative reaction to it, yeah. it's bad. 
<laughs> okay. So what are you trying to say then? <laughs> okay, let's keep going. I would say, to link the better, I would say if it's just not done with any skill or any thought, so like the whole idea of the unmade bed, that's art. That took me five seconds to do or whatever. So if it's not skillfully done, and then also number two, if it's not, if it's just plain like vulgar, because you can communicate a serious and deep message without like, for instance, uh, like if you did a, a, you know, just a drawing of like the finger, like you can communicate a message like that, but you don't have to be vulgar. You mean this finger? <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, ma'am. What do you mean by that? I don't know. It's just a neutral question. Yeah, it's a neutral question. <laughs> Why? What do you think the nuance is? Well, there's different types of bad. There's an ethical bad. There's a moral bad. There's a bad that makes you not feel good or makes you feel sad. Um, and so, I guess I was wondering what what you mean exactly by bad. Do you mean like evil bad, like demonic bad, or do you mean just like ethical bad? I think it's pointedly ambiguous. So. Answer the question. I would say there is such thing as demonic art. Okay. And it's bad. Okay. <laughs> Ethical bad. Um, yes. There would be. I would say purity and purity. And probably deism. So if we said good as the opposite on one side, I'm gonna walk over here for good, is pragmatic, it works, it's pleasurable, and it's morally right, then bad on this I would have to be the opposite. It doesn't work, it's unpleasurable, and it stands for what's wrong. So in that sense, art could be on all three levels. It could be an art that just doesn't work, it doesn't have the right balance of parts, it doesn't fit together well. Or your example, art that doesn't require discipline, I just say, hmm, I'm not sure it's art. I'm not sure that something that happens that didn't require something of the artist is by definition art. It could be an event or it could be a thing, but I'm not sure I'd call it art. And then on the other end, it could represent something that's truly evil. It could represent something that is bad in life. Um, you know. Pick, pick your bad, pick your sin, and it represents something like that, or it's promoting something like that. Um, and then it would be bad on all three counts. So your question is very astute, and that's exactly right. It's bad on all levels. Yes? And I think part of the art of graffiti is its vandalistic nature. I don't think it qualifies as graffiti if it's like on a paid for space, <laughs> even if it's the same art, because some of it's amazing. I don't even know how you get that out of a spray can. I mean, I'm just like, what? But you're right, it's uh, trespassing, it's, it's bad. So that's a problem. Up in front and then right back to you. I don't even like that statement because I 
because a lot of the reasons why people think that they can't produce art is because they don't feel like they don't have the training or they don't, they're not as good as the person next to them, which there's so many different mediums to just be like, oh, I can't do art or that's bad because you're untrained. I, that enrages me, actually. Um, and not only that, being from the Portland area, if you've ever went to, like, first or last Thursday, you know some people just scrape a pencil in a jaggedy line on a paper and it's for over a thousand dollars. And then there's other people who can sell their paintings for five dollars that have so much detail and there's so much put into it. And it's just because this person's an artist and then this person's not. Um, I think it's hard to state when something is bad or good. I think the intent behind it can often portray a lot more. But even then, depending on who's looking at it, they might get something completely different. I mean, you could paint something that's very erotic, but then at the same time, someone else looking at it, they see it as, like, love. Or someone sees it as, uh, you know, a rawness of humanity. And so, depending on, like, who's actually looking at it, I mean, it can be something that, like, creates a lot of emotions for some people and for other people not. I mean, there's something that gives, makes one person angry, or the other person, it reminds them of something in their childhood that was like a great thing. And so, because it's so diverse, and like the way we perceive things are so diverse, it's hard to put it in one standard thing. Yeah, I agree. And just to be clear, the word that I use, I don't know if someone else used the word trained, is disciplined, um, which may require training, maybe not. What discipline means is I had to, I had to do without something in my life to make this happen. It required a discipline of my energies and of my efforts and my focus, and that's what I was talking about, not training, because I agree. And I would say, as far as the, uh, the issue of perspective, that, this is really hard, because when we start talking about art and beauty, it, in our culture, it is such a subjective topic. I was gonna say subjective subject, but I'm not sure that's a subjective topic. The difficulty is we confuse my perception of a piece of art as the art itself. And what we're trying to talk about is the art, not necessarily our perceptions of it. But that's what we keep getting back to, like the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, um, that this is where it happens. It happens in my brain, beauty does, versus happening in the actual object of expression. And those are two different things. Those are two different realities. Yes, sir. I just don't think, I think there's a line, you know, and this is, right, yeah, salesmanship for sure. What would you say, I don't know what it is, so let's take for instance Michelangelo's statue of David. David is like season dude and all the jazz and we consider that to be super beautiful and like artistic and wonderful and like there's nothing wrong with it because there isn't any intent behind it to be wrong. It's just the statue of David. And like, and then we have like, so we go to a crazy opposite, like pornography, which people consider art, which I'm not advocating at all by any means. And I understand there is a difference because in one, there is an intent to do something wrongful. But how do you tell someone 
who isn't a Christian someone that like this is okay, this nudity, and this nudity is not okay. I wouldn't try to defend one nudity over another at all. No. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And, I, and part of the difficulty is pornography is, is um, it's not really crafted as art. You know, it's, it's, it's crafted as something completely other than art. It, it probably goes more with like the monkey painting, monkey art. Uh, just really bad reasoning, and, yeah. and Americans use that kind of reasoning all the time. Um, how does the church need to protect itself from the art culture, or does the church need to protect itself from the art culture? It can be discerning. Um, Good word. I think discerning is a great word. And discerning is part of this knowledge, part of knowing what you're looking at and why you're looking at it and what you're looking for when you're looking at it. Um, and I think that that level of discernment is something that it's just too much work. And so church, through history, post-Reformation history, just decided to give up on art. I mean, like art in our churches is almost non-existent. And it's this austerity is on purpose because we didn't have the discernment to say what it was for, what it was promoting, what it was helping us do. Um, and so after the Reformation, basically art just left the building and hasn't returned. Unless you're in an exceptional church or you're in New York, where there are whole churches of like a group of people your age that are creatives who danger for them is they're on the very edge of just worshiping art itself, which um, our churches are on the danger of worshiping worship, so it's not that much different. Yeah. It was all about worship, yeah. <laughs> and it literally was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's difficult. I mean, as a as a musical artist in my life, it has been discernment again, great word, uh, a constant discernment to make sure what the end of my artistry was as a follower of Jesus. Every decision I make, everything I do, should have at its end the glory of God. But art can have its own end, and then it's lost. You know, it's lost its way. Yeah. I have been in churches that have art mm. in the sanctuary and stuff. And I think, I think it's completely fine for churches to have art in the church building itself. But when they're in the sanctuary, personally, I find it very distracting. I find myself studying the art pieces more than 
Well, and in a lot of churches, the art in the church can be way better than the sermon. <laughs> and it might be deserving of your attention more than a sermon. I'm just being honest, you know. Yeah. And again, I think discernment is a huge part of this. We're going to get into this a little bit more in terms of how to be discerning and what it is that we need to be discerning of. So let's talk about um, the pseudo-guide that has happened in uh, modern art and all the way into postmodern art. And that is this high power of individualism. And that art is beautiful or it is art because I said it's art. It's art to me, therefore it's art. And I self-define what is and isn't art. It's art for me, it doesn't have to be for you. And this individualism is dangerous. I mean, it's rampant through our society. Art's just a convenient way to talk about it because it is so entirely subjective. And um, this uh, individualism in our society and expressed beautifully in art appreciation is causing us this sense of isolation and this horrible um, ability that we have to confirm ourselves. It's in psychology, it's confirmation bias, where you've already decided what's true and then you just continue to prove it to yourself over and over and over again. And we do that. The subjectivity of art is a place where this happens. The rise of the individual and personal subjectivity has taken over art. It's art because I said it's art. And it's art to me, therefore it's art. Which is not, that's not true. I mean, you couldn't do that in, in so many other realms. Like, you can't put um, dog food in a pound of flour in a bowl and call it a pie either. <laughs> I mean, a pie has a particular set of parameters and expectations. And you can say, well, it's a pie to me. And everybody just look at you funny and wonder if you bark when you sleep. But <laughs> that, in art, it seems like that's okay for us to, to take away all the boundaries on all the edges. Anybody here know who Jackson Pollock is? Um, he is a surrealist um, painter who used huge canvases, like a canvas would be like half the size of this room, um, square footage on the floor, and would cast the paint and throw the paint. And, um, I don't know if you've ever seen one, obviously if you've never heard of him, you haven't seen him, but there's just massive, a wall of, of paint. And I was showing a picture of a Jackson Pollock to my daughter, and she said, I could do that. And I said, you should try it and see if when you spill paint, it looks like that. Because there's something that happens if you sit in front of a Jackson Pollock, if you can get past the fact that it spilled paint and look at the texture and the mixture and the balance and the symmetry and what he's done, that makes it different than spilled paint. I spill paint. I'm not an artist. But again, the discipline required as the receiver to sit and look and investigate and let your eye 
move very carefully through it and let your imagination move very carefully through it. Um, which abstractionist surrealist art is really hard for a lot of people. I mean, you go to the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and people just walk past so much art because they just don't, <clears throat> they don't have the time to get it. They don't wanna take the time to get it. So there's this sense of art that made Jackson Pollock's spilled paint <clears throat> more than Greg Bohr's spilled paint. And it wasn't just him saying, oh no, it's art. It's the rest of the artistic community saying his spilled paint is different than somebody else's, uh, everybody else's spilled paint. You can see him if you just Google Jackson Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K, you can see some of these. The problem is you, you'll see him just on your screen and you need to see them, you know, 60 feet wide and 20 feet high. They're just absolutely amazing. So there's relative values based on individual preference. And, and again, it, we're losing the sense of what makes beauty beauty, what makes art art, because it just comes down to, to use your example, what the expert says or what the trained person says, or they're a paid artist, so anything they do after that is art, which is not true. Um, and again, that's the subjective part of this, this pseudo guide, this individualism. And the, the difficulty of that, and I've just moved out of art into the liberal democracy, the, the, the idea that I have a freedom of speech and a freedom to create and a freedom to express myself however I want, that is not what freedom is. Freedom does not mean everybody gets to do whatever they want. It never, ever means that. It was never, ever supposed to mean that. What were the early forefathers trying to be free from? Specifically? Uh, the, that they could write what they wanted to about what's going on in the state, so not what England was telling them they could write about the state. Right. The king of England. Who's the, ne the Declaration of Independence written to? England. The king, not England. Hey, all you English people. <laughs> uh, it's the king of England, and they're declaring an independence and a freedom from that. So when we celebrate freedom as a country, it's not the freedom to do whatever we want. That is not freedom. That's called anarchy. <laughs> and it is not free. If that happens, even in this room, if that happened, if just for like five minutes I said, just do whatever you want, nothing co cohesive would, would happen. Because it, it requires all of us committing to one thing for something cohesive to happen. And that's the difficulty is we've taken this individualism and this subjectivism and we've pushed it down into all the different fabrics of our society so that people literally think that what our military is, is out there fighting for is 400 cable channels and your ability to do whatever you want to do without accountability. And that is not freedom. And that's the, the final blow of individualism. Any comments about this? Yeah, and it's, and it's, right, and this separation allows for just zero accountability. And there should be accountability in the world of art. There should be something that circumscribes what art is, like cooking and like building and, 
commerce, like every other part of our, our world, is circumscribed by a set of definitions and expectations. And art seems to be the one place that it's just freewheeling. Any other comments? I'm glad the pieces are going together. That makes me feel good. Theological pitfalls. The first one is dualism. And this is the Eastern idea originated in the East, um, perpetuated in the West through people like Plato, who we were talking about this uh, earlier today. And the idea of the separation of the physical and the spiritual, the tactile and the intactile, the, um, the world of matter and the, in the, in the immaterial world. And Gnosticism, and I think you know this because I talked about it last year when we were in First Timothy, and I know you took great notes, and you know everything there is to know about Gnosticism, was the idea that Jesus Christ could not have a body because a body is physical, and evil is physical, and God is spirit, and everything that is spirit is good, and there's no evil in spirit, there's only evil in material, in, in matter. And this was one of the primary heresies that Paul wrote, most of what he wrote in the New Testament, against this idea. Because there's a problem if Jesus isn't physical, right? And if he's just a really, like, apparitional representation of God, but he doesn't have a physical body, what's the problem with that? Or? Resurrect, yeah. And we were talking today, the teachers, we all went out to lunch with Josh and Dave, which is really fun because they pay. Um, <laughs> We go to the lazy student. Um, but we were talking today about the fact that Jesus had to have a physical nature because so many of the miracles that he had performed, he touched people. Or they touched him. And there was this tactile reality. So not the Gnostic heresy was a huge problem because the separation is needless. And we do it too. I mean, even in our class, we're calling it Christianity and secular culture, and we've created this schism between what is sacred and secular, which there is, the sacred and the secular, but it's not a clean division in this world. It's not a clean divide where I can say everything on that, on that side of the line is secular and everything on this side of the line is sacred. Notice I put myself on the sacred side. Um, you, there isn't lines like that through the world, and there aren't lines like that through music. I was just listening to Mahler's Seventh Symphony performed by Gustavo Dudamel, and the LA Philharmonic, in fact, you walked by and I was in there humming along listening to it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, you were memorizing something so you didn't pay any attention. But um, <clears throat> I'm listening to this thinking, this moves me, this, this moves me like Godward. This is doing something inside of me that is, feels worshipful. Mahler didn't write it for that reason but something inside me happens. So if I say, oh, Mahler, he's not a Christian, so he's on the secular side of the... What, what if what Mahler wrote changes something inside of me by God's beautiful work and his spirit in me while I'm listening? Do you see the difference? So we try to like draw this hard line between what's Christian and non-Christian or sacred and not, or in secular. Um, we, we, we could miss a lot. <laughs> and I think the church in total has missed a lot. That's the theological pitfall. The material world versus the spiritual world. And I just wrote this because when God created, what did he create? A material world. I mean, he made everything 
and he made it beautiful and he made it perfect, literally perfect. Have you ever bitten into like a perfect pear or a perfect apple? And I choose to believe that in the Garden of Eden, there was like a pork chop tree. <laughs> and I got the perfect pork chop. Because you couldn't kill piggies in the Garden of Eden, but you got to have pork chops. So there will be in the new heaven and new earth, there will be a pork chop tree. That's where you'll find me. Because uh, <laughs> my idea of heaven is a stuffed pork chop. Um, but the, the, the fact is, we don't need to separate this. When God made his perfect creation, it was material. It was matter. It was physical. And it was exactly what God wanted. And when he came to earth in Jesus Christ, he was physical and he was perfect. And he was the exact, Paul, Colossians 1, the exact representation of the fullness of God. So there's something we have to embrace about this. There's something that we need to understand and take a little bit further than we normally do. There's a couple of words I want you to add that came to me as I was reviewing this um, today, that the church is committed to an anti-sensuality that I think is costing us. It's costing us an apprehension of who God is because we're so undiscerning that we don't have the ability to say it's too much and we've crossed the line. So instead of that, we just take away any sensuality. And I'm not just talking about sexuality. I'm talking about anything you take in from your senses as sensuality. That we have been so nervous about being sensually moved and sensually um, apprehending realities that we've decided that in Christian life in America, there will be no sensuality whatsoever. Another great word is austerity. And most worship places, spaces that you go into right now, are completely austere. There's nothing beautiful in them. In fact, it's almost more spiritual if it's kind of an ugly, plain building. And if somebody gets a bright idea to put up like an Easter banner, then somebody else is going to come up and go, what is this? What is this? I sound like the church lady. Uh, isn't that special? Um, but that's what happens. And it was part of the Reformation. It was part of the movement away from uh, icons, which were a big part of both Eastern and Western worship, were artistic renderings that were supposed to be, and this is the theology of an icon, is it supposed to be a window through which you see the reality. That was supposed to be the beauty of an icon. So you see a beautiful icon of uh, the 12 apostles. And you're supposed to see not that icon, but see past it to 12 real men that Jesus loved and cared for and shared food with and talked with and, you know, on cold nights snuggled with. And, and they listened to everything he said and watched everything that he did. And when he wanted to spread his kingdom, he said, now you go do it. And that's what you're supposed to see. But Reformationists got nervous that these were not icons. These were what? Idols. And that they're worshiping the saints, which a very important word is venerating. It's not the same as worshiping. And if you're from an iconoclastic background, I don't want to tempt you or I don't want you to cross a line or anything like that. But I, I want us to be aware that at the Reformation, the church stopped being the sponsor of artistic beauty in the world. And we've never regained that place. Literally the best music prior to the Reformation was being commissioned by the church. The best art, Michelangelo and the beautiful rendering of David, 
was commissioned by the church. Look at church buildings before the Reformation and look at them after. Now, I think there was horrible problems and opulences and, you know, people giving money for their sin. I mean, I'm not justifying any of that. I'm just talking about the beauty of it and saying we threw the baby out with the bathwater because we're so nervous about this sensual aspect that I'm going to get stuck on the icon, I'm going to get stuck on the beauty, and I'm not going to be able to get past it. I can't trust God to take me past this. And because of that, we've been raised in here in America, in American church, with this suspicion of beauty and this suspicion of sensuality and this suspicion of the fine things in life that somehow being more austere is more spiritual. Is that me? Okay. That somehow being more austere is more spiritual. And this is Puritanism. This was the austerity and um, the anti-sensuality of, of uh, Puritanism. And it has stayed with us. It has stayed with us in church. Rarely. I've been in a lot of churches. It is rare to find one where it is a reflection of the beauty of God. Because we're so afraid of it. Any comments about this? Do you agree with me? I think it's a very American thing because overseas it's um, very, very beautiful. Oh, it's very American. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's just here that we do this because overseas they're like their churches are so beautiful. And the places where we have spread um, Western Christianity. <laughs> so try to find a nice-looking evangelical church in Central America. They're ugly. The Catholic churches are beautiful. And you're referring like to Russian, your, your time in Russia? Because Eastern Orthodoxy, <laughs> Russian Orthodoxy, Slavic Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, they've never ever given up the beauty. They never had a reformation, they never needed one. You know there's a whole half of the world going to heaven? <laughs> you know that, right? The whole, whole of Eastern Orthodoxy um, is a beautiful expression of the bride of Christ that we don't even understand. They look Catholic to us, so we kind of write them off. But uh, there's an amazing history of art. And I've read, I mean, I, I, I decided at a point in my life I'd never understood Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm going to understand Eastern Orthodoxy. I read everything that was in English, because most of it is not, uh, so that I would understand Eastern Orthodoxy. And part of their, um, a, a primary motivation in their worship is understanding icons and what the icons do and are supposed to make happen as signs of devotion. So, any other comments? So let's get to this um, couple of key concepts. The first one is the interpretive community, that there should be a group that um, uh, helps us interpret, a group hermeneutic, a, a group interpretive process. Um, and let me just start with something very basic that you know very, very well. The Bible was written to groups. Every book in the Bible was written to a group of people. Even you say, whoa, what about First and Second Timothy? Timothy was a pastor of Ephesus and read his letters in the church at Ephesus. I know that they got circulated. You know how I know it? Because we still have them. So even the letters that are written specifically, like to Philemon, became communal letters. And they were to be interpreted communally. What ended up happening was we started trusting experts 
in Bible, experts in theology, experts in history, experts in every, every place to tell us what these things mean as opposed to hanging on to a group hermeneutic. It's interesting, I, you know, we have several different Sunday schools in our church and the oldest group, they always call themselves the ambassadors, though I'm not sure what they're ambassadoring, but that's just a good like Bible name for old people. Um, so they call themselves the ambassadors class. And I went in and taught them, and I'm the pastor of the church. I'm one of the pastors, but the lead pastor. And so they all expect me to tell them what the Bible means. And I just put questions in front of them. Open, this, open your Bible to this passage. Here's some questions to lead you through. And then bring your answers back to the group. And they don't like it. They want me to tell them what the Bible means. And it's amazing to me because as they do this, I've never, ever taught them when they didn't come up with the right meaning of a text by doing it together which is really important to realize. And this is what's supposed to be happening in an area like art, that beauty should not be purely subjective. It's not purely individual. It's something that we agree on together. It's something that the artistic community says to Jackson Pollock, your art moves all of us. And this goes back to the point about beauty being in the eye of the beholder. What if we all see beauty when we're looking at the same thing? Isn't there something inherent in that that makes it beautiful other than just my perception of it being beautiful. Or in a great piece of music. You know, a lot of music has been written that nobody else knows about. I've written music that nobody ever needs to know about, ever. Because <laughs> I took music composition courses where we had to write music. I write horrible music. Technically, it's correct. Like my chord structure is correct and it all follows all the rules and all that kind of stuff. It just sounds terrible. It doesn't move you out, out the door. That's how it moves you. <laughs> like, like it moves you away from the piano. Um, and there's all kinds of music that has, you know, great symphonic music that just never made it out the door. Great writers. Beethoven wrote stuff that nobody has ever heard since he wrote it because it wasn't, it wasn't great. It didn't fit with an interpretive community he said, ah, the amazing stuff. How many of you have cooked something that you've never cooked again? Because oh. <laughs> it was horrible. Yeah, how many of you cooked something? <laughs> nope. <laughs> how many of you cooked something and you cooked it again because it was really good? Yep, so that's, that's <laughs> what happens. And there should be something that happens in the society and in a culture and in a church, I mean, we should have a discernment. It should be a group discernment. It should be something that we agree together as to the beauty uh, of, of expression in our midst. And that's what corporate worship is, right? It's something beautiful that none, nobody can do by themselves. That's the beauty of corporate worship. So I've put Merriam-Webster because I already re referred to this, that we kind of think of him and the, his dictionary as the arbiter of meaning of words. But literally what he did was he took the common use of a word, the group hermeneutic of a word, and wrote down the way that we all use the word. He did some um, etymological work and he looked at you know, the pieces of word in Latin or Germanic language or wherever it came from. And that's the little part that's hard to read in the parentheses at the beginning. But when he started writing down definitions, it was just the way the word was used. If you ever study Greek and you look at a Greek um, the word just left me, Con not concordance. Nope. Anyway, a Greek dictionary, I just, the word just went 
Oh, it's going to drive me nuts forever. Um, when you look at it, they'll give you the possible renderings of a word, and those were the way that the Greeks used that word commonly. That's what you have, how it was rendered in this writing, in this writing, in this writing, in this writing. So the community of faith versus an expert should be our interpreter. And when we get down to beauty, I have this deep, deep conviction, you can buy it or not, that all beauty, every beauty, starts in God's creative mind. Everything that's beautiful starts in God's creative mind, in his soul. And he weaves it into the fabric of this world. And it's not just the things that are overtly beautiful, <laughs> but the things that are just circumstantially beautiful as well. Anytime that you catch your breath or your heart jumps a beat because of something that you've seen or felt or heard or tasted or sensually apprehended, I think God has given you a gift. That's my feeling. Now you, you don't have to buy that. But there are three, there are five transcendental virtues. Transcendental not in that you get them by meditating, but transcendental in that they transcend all the virtues. And that is unity, existence, beauty, truth, and goodness. Unity means all the pieces fit together all the time, which in this world, that's what happens. Existence is just exactly what it means. <laughs> There's nothing that's anything if it doesn't exist. But beauty, truth, and goodness are the three that we talk about regularly. And I believe that all five of these transcendent virtues are transcendent because they emanate from the person of God. So truth, the way we defined it earlier this week is, what theory represents reality best? That's truth. What is the basis of our reality? And you can give me the Sunday school answer. God. God is the basis for our reality. So all truth, two plus two equals four, I had sausage and eggs for breakfast. All truth emanates out of the reality that emanates out of God. All truth comes from God. All goodness comes from God. And I said this before, God's not just the best, he is the definition of good. If for something to be bad, the more bad something is, the more unlike God it is. Okay? Everything that's good emanates from the person of God. And beauty is the same way. Beauty emanates from the very person of God. If he didn't want things to be beautiful, it wouldn't be. Eve, I guarantee, was beautiful. I guarantee Adam was hot, because <laughs> we don't use the same word for guys. He was beautiful. But paradise was beautiful. It was perfect. And that's the way God intended it to be. Everything was beautiful. And this is what comes out of God. And he's got a deep desire to continue to promote beauty and to, to be worshipped for his beauty, the way he's expressed it around us. And I think, my personal feeling is, that followers of Jesus should be the best appreciators, promoters, and creators of all things beautiful. And instead, we stink at it. We are horrible at it. And it's because we've had this visceral, inside, undiscerning reaction to the sensual parts of life. 
we didn't know how to handle them and it felt so much like sin that we just cut ourselves off from everything beautiful. And this is Puritan theology and it's infected the American church. And this is, I'm, I'm just making a plea and a call back in the world of artistic culture for us to go back to our place of creating, promoting, enjoying, appreciating and worshiping uh, our great God in all his beauty. Because I think we miss something just tragic all the time, all the time. And yes, we need discernment. That's what the interpretive community is for. You should be doing this with people knowing it. People should know that you do this. Like one of my little things, nobody else in my family likes symphonic music, but I just love symphonic music. I would rather listen to, like I said, I just listened to uh, a Mahler symphony. I would much rather listen to that than an hour-long contemporary worship service. And I like our worship group. I mean, they're absolutely amazing. I have like one of the three best guitarists in the city of Portland playing at my church, our worship leader. He's absolutely amazing. And the spirit of what we do, the art of what we do, it is, it is truly amazing. And I'd still rather listen to a symphony. <laughs> so for me, it's a very soft spot for me. And I can remember feeling that God's not embarrassed that he is glorified when I appreciate his beauty. He's worshipped when I appreciate beauty. And I have to be discerning because I can't draw a line and make a symphony an end in itself or make the perfect peach pie an end in itself or a perfect sunset an end in itself. It's like an icon. I want to see the God through it in all his beauty. I love these verses that I put in your notes. First one is so obvious. God saw all that he made and he saw that it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And part of very good is you just think God the creator created the world, created paradise, created the Garden of Eden, put Adam and Eve there. And then he went to touch it one more time and he went, nope, it's perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. And I believe that that's what God is taking us back to. I believe Revelation 21, the end of the story, is a new heaven and a new earth that God recreates exactly what he wanted in the first place. And I love these verses from, or these words from Ecclesiastes 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything's a lot of stuff. You think about how much stuff is included in the word everything that everything has a beauty in it. You have a beauty in you. Every situation in this world that feels like it's just falling apart, God's got the ability to recreate a beauty. He needs time. How much time? He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. So if everything is beautiful in its time and eternity is in the hearts of men, God's got all the time he needs to make everything beautiful once again. All right, let me pray. So Lord, once again, we're just uh, so grateful, not just for what you made, not just for what you do, not just for the sounds and the sights and the colors and the textures, 
but for the fact that we have nerves that we can feel them and eardrums that vibrate and, and nerves that let us take in and interpret colors and smells and tastes. And every time we say yes and mmm and, <laughs> and our breath is caught, Lord, help us to change that, turn it over into a moment of worship of you, a moment of gratitude to thank you for every good and perfect gift. In Jesus' name, amen.